0: Hello there you, welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me Russell Brand, guess who I spoke to, it was Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's pretty amazing, Uh, he was promoting his book Letters from an Astrophysicist, but he was more than that, Um, being a focused and dedicated educator, and after I'd done his podcast, Star Time, Star Chat, star talk and that was good as well i enjoyed talking to him the main thrust of it as you might imagine was me continually going yeah but come on there must be a god yeah come on but there's spirits and ghosts yeah come on there's miracles it was actually my ongoing argument that it's hard to apply the tools of science to realms that may be beyond sensual or sensory rather Experience. It's pretty good. And how can science claim to be objective as it exists within a capitalist consumer culture that has certain agendas and objectives? Anyway, I made it better in the conversation with him than I did in that intro just then. So you'll hear it, because unless you think, oh no, I'm not enjoying this intro, fuck that guy. Hello everyone at Luminary. I hope you're all enjoying this and you're all happy. We're very happy to be on your platform. Now here's some personal promo from me. Have a look at my YouTube channel. There's really good things on there. I do a 25-minute show called The Not Too Late Show, which I'll probably do a bit more if people watch it. I do loads of little spiritual videos that you'll like. And I look at the comments on things. Or Look, I get comments passed on to me by someone. So, you know, if you're talking to me in a positive, loving, and innovative way, I'll probably see it. But if you're being mean, I'll probably be protected from that. That's just the way the world has to be these days. Have a look at my Instagram, at Russell Brand. You can question me on that. Sign up to my mailing list, russellbrand.com, and you'll be the first to be told about upcoming shows, and there are some upcoming shows. Some One of them at a really nice venue, and receive exclusive content not found on my social media or YouTube channel. Okay, if you want to get in touch with me on uh, social media, I'm at Rusty Rockets on Twitter. I'm at Russell Brand on Instagram. And what am I on TikTok if you're a young person? I'm at Russell Brand official. <clears throat> That's right. I've gone on to TikTok and LinkedIn, Russell Brand. That's right. I'm available across a multitude of platforms now. Um, Remember last week I said to you, who's got some questions? Here are some questions. Hi, Russell. Sorry about the delay. Sorry about the delay. This is interesting. I in this is from Gary Bennett. Sorry about the delay getting back to you with the regards to the topics for the new podcast. I was thinking really hard on what to say. Oh, I'm a married man, twelve years with two beautiful daughters. Oh, I find it hard to be a husband, dad, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, would love to hear you interview someone who knows about this stuff or can add a new perspective on the whole marriage thing. So, what's that going to be? Someone that's to, who's an expert on coupling or relationships? Or you know, it's not going to be a religious person, is it? Who's it going to be? A relationship expert? Who? Huh? Emma Kenny, Yeah, she's brilliant. We could talk to Emma Kenny, couldn't we? We'll get someone then on what? Parenting and family life and keeping that shit together. So yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with being in a, the... Con, you know, living life in a family can be very, very challenging. Uh, when am I coming to Ireland again? I'm not sure, Gary Bennett. Dearest Russell and growing team. Oh, yeah, because of Bear and Jenny and Charlie and Annabelle and a legion of wonderful volunteers. Anna, Damia... Tony, they're the people that respond to the emails because if you've got an email you want to send me, like these people did, you can send it to help at at help at russellbrand.com no, help at russellbrand.com help at russellbrand.com if you send me this thing there and you need help, you'll get you'll be in the loop, especially if you've got a drink drug, mental health problem that kind of stuff, you know I, this is Olivia Stevenson I just felt an overwhelming urge to email as Julia, Julia Cameron popped into my head, surely she would be an excellent guest on Skin. she's up for it actually but she's in another country, America so when I'm in America we'll do it creativity, addiction, recovery, faith, turning on higher power, abundance, prosperity and another female voice which can never be a bad thing I hope you're, you're satisfied with the number of female voices, I think we're doing quite well in making sure that things are balanced, 50-50 was, because, how do we categorize everyone really? Surely, beyond there are f- systems of categorization that go way beyond sex, gender, race, religion. You know, what if it's like I'd like diabetics, you know, like, um, and another female voice, but yeah, I, I'd love Julie Cameron, she's a brilliant person. Hope you're well, and thanks for your brilliant and beautiful work. Thanks, Olivia. Warmest autumn wishes. What a nice thing to be sent. Hi, Russell and team, says Kelly Kay. I've recently found your podcast and have been devouring episodes as much as I can. I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you break away from comparison. Oh, that's awful. Just don't. Yeah, well, I struggle with the trap of seeing others online, says Kelly Kay, comparing my apples to their oranges, saucy, and feeling jealous when it feels as though my resources are lacking or less than someone else's. Does that make sense? Of course it makes sense. That's what I do. What I try and do is firstly not get too much into doing that at all. You know, like not, they call it compare and despair, judging your own insides compared to other people's outsides. We don't know how other people feel. Like, because I'm lucky to be in recovery, I get to chat to people sometimes more deeply. And you meet people you think, oh, this person's so beautiful and talented, they'll have no problems they have. Oh, this person's so hard and tough, they'll have no problems they have. Everyone's vulnerable as hell, everyone's defined by the basic conditions of life which are, let's face it, death. I'd love to hear what you and your next guest have to say. Right, okay, I'll bring that up. Com- comparison MV for Kelly Kay. We'll insert that into our next interview with whoever it is we interview. We don't even know yet, do we? Actually, we fly by the seat of house pants. Hiya, mate, says Rob. I love the new videos. I met you in New oh, York. I met you in York on your live Birth tour. And have been following you work wholeheartedly. Well, that's how people in York talk. Your recent Q and A's are amazing. And I just wondered if you're gonna do one on law mood. I myself this is how people from York talk. I myself suffer from Oh no actually it's talking about serious things now. I myself suffer from PTSD. Alright, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry, Rob, I'm sorry about that accent from life events and tours in the army oh god rob you're a bloody hero you're a yorkshire hero and i've been helped by an emdr program that i'm in the middle of the moment i did to emdr yesterday it's brilliant You have to remember some traumatic event from your past and then the old flicky light comes on and you have to follow the flicky light from side to side while remembering your past and what it does apparently is it helps you to reposition neurologically something from a place of unacknowledged or possibly even unconscious emotional trauma to a place where it's been, I don't know, processed. I'm not a neurologist nor am I I an EDMR therapist but I found it very useful, Rob, and... I hope you find it useful as well. I keep the self-care, healthy diet, meditation, kickboxing and karate, and no drink or drug. God, you're doing great. But even in good company, I feel alone. Yeah, I feel that. And I use grounding techniques. Stay with the breath, Rob. But I can't shift feeling lost, hollow, and slipping down in force. And I can't shake the black dog. How would you advise someone who feels like this? Well, what I'd say, Rob, is something in you is yearning for purpose and connection. You're obviously a person who's down with service. I admire anybody that's been in the army or any of the uh, so could you do you call it service industries? So it shouldn't really be an industry, should it? Services. Yeah, anyone's been in the services, man, for the self-sacrifice, for the duty, the sense of honour, valor, community. I imagine that perhaps you, there is now. A vacancy in your life, and I might suggest some volunteering. I think that you're a, a good communicator, mate, and I bet you can do, um, I bet you can help people. I bet you can help people, Rob. Look, Rob, I for one would like to apologise for the accent at the beginning of the email. It were a bit like that, wouldn't it? Is that even right? I mean, that's yokes. Yes, it is. That's how they talk. What's wrong with you, like Bradford? Yes, they do. You are know, Jeff Boycott... Look, I will not have that accent criticised. Certainly not one Irish person has got no right to judge the English accent because, for after all, what history has there been between England and Ireland? Thank you. You've got Your eyebrows are too big. Pluck out 50% of them. Thank you for... actually raised her eyebrows at me. Thank you for all your work. It really helps and has helped me in numerous situations and pain. Rob, I'm sending you so much love, mate. You're absolutely fantastic. My suggestion, find some 12-step fellowships around uh, PTSD and even around the abstinence. I certainly would be, you know, I use support groups myself and I love them. So uh, that's my thoughts. And maybe a little bit of volunteering because I think you've got a lot of love to give, Rob. That's my feelings, mate. All right, let's see if there's been any comments on our last episode with Gail Book. You've commented. Gal okay, well, Brad Booker, of course, one of the founders of the Extinction Rebellion and a damn fine person. This someone's called Epson Jorgensen, go. And I feel like I've heard it from Espen Jorgensen before. This is good. On target. We're moving up a level in collective consciousness. And right now it's extremely painful to be an empath, at least it is for me. And the more, says this empath, and the more. Conscious people talk about this shift. The better, thank you. Nice. Maybe our Lord Christ brought a level of consciousness to Earth that would never been seen before. Maybe it is always this way with the prophets. New ways of thinking. Perhaps new frequencies. Maybe on a deep down essential level, a level that would satisfy an astrophysicist like Neil deGrasse Tyson or a biochemist like Carl Bradbrook. Brook, you know, looking at the what's what is it? A vibe. What is charisma? I'm not expecting you to know, Jen, you've not got any, but for me, (laughs) Freya Shamanka, really fascinating talk with Gal Bradbook. thanks, I went and looked up about spiral dynamics, which I'd never heard of before, I totally agree, this movement is evidence of the shift of consciousness humanity has experienced post-2012, and I'm very excited by it, this is just the beginning, yeah, I agree with you, Freya, Joanna Long, I could learn a lot from that lady. Do believe in love, but too often and too readily fall into cynicism. Wow, this is the curse of the romantic, protecting ourselves with cynicism. I often have the first reaction to reflect the same negative energy back rather than meet with the opposing force with more powerful love, with more the pa- more powerful force, which is, of course, love. Joanna, I know I made some mistakes while reading your comment, but I basically bloody well agree with you. And We must show some faith in the great power of love. And what better way to... Demonstrate that faith than by having astrophysicist, and by all accounts, from those him, in the women who uh, run this podcast, an avuncular and wonderful man, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's probably got all sorts of letters after his name, he's got quite a lot of letters in his name, a lot of letters. Anyway, I found him to be quite wonderful. Thanks. <laughs> Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a no, successful that, route. Yes,
1: that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology.
0: What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. And welcome to Russell Brand.
1: Under the skin.
0: Thank you Neil deGrasse Tyson for coming on under the skin it's a thrill to meet you.
1: Russell, thanks thanks for the full three name moniker but just Neil will Neil be fine. From going now forward on. yeah. Thank yeah. you very much mm-hmm. for uh,
0: permitting that. Um, I'm reading your new book Letters from an Astrophysicist it c- covers some biographical little
1: d- little bit yeah yeah yeah. I mean it opens with uh, a letter uh, that I wrote to NASA And I didn't write it when I was a kid. I wrote it as a full-grown adult last year. (laughs) I just thought that there was some tracking of my life versus that of NASA. We were born the same week on the calendar uh, in 1958, the first week of October. And uh, we just led very different lives in that first decade in the 1960s in the United States. Um, I growing up in the Bronx, knowing from an early age that I enjoyed the universe and that maybe even the universe had chosen me, yet seeing NASA going from Mercury to Gemini to Apollo, I mean, the greatest epic adventure humans have ever undertaken, yet in the 1960s, this is the, the seat of the civil rights movement and leaders getting assassinated and march on Washington. And so... I was in between those two worlds, and I bet many other Americans were not. They just sort of saw NASA as just America, like the sole identity of America. But I saw different Americas in there over that time.
0: How did you and how do you reconcile macro projects such as space exploration with the minutiae minutiae and tribal conflicts of civilized people?
1: Yeah, I, I, I hesitate to put the phrase tribal conflict in the same sentence with civilized people. <laughs> <laughs> to me, tribal conflict is, is evidence of the absence of civilization. Civilization is the ability to get along with people who are different from you. That's how I've always thought of it. Obviously, there's more to it than that, but I see that as a fundamental feature of civilization. And war has a way of destroying civilization or, or regressing it in some way so yeah space is you know what what did Neil Armstrong say when he stepped on the moon he said I, uh one small step for a man one giant leap for mankind the plaque on the moon says we come in peace for all mankind it didn't say we come in peace for America right so there was some lofty goals involved in that in that um, journey and so, I think it has the power to bring out the best of us, at least uh, the best of us, in terms of what we think is what we think is possible for our species. And yeah, you come back to Earth. You know, th- they saw Earth as this sort of orb floating in the vacuum darkness of space. Whereas if you're down here on Earth. And you can see it and taste it and smell it. And remember, we were in the middle of the Vietnam War at that time. So Earth looks very different when you're on its surface than it does when you're a quarter of a million miles away. And uh, one of the, uh, for me, one of the great takeaways of that era was that we went to the moon to explore the moon, but then we looked back and discovered Earth for the first time. In fact, you can trace every important legislation related to protecting Earth to that era. So from the, at least in the United States, but also globally, uh, 1970, the Environmental Protection Agency was formed. Why wasn't that formed in 1960 or 1950 or 1940 or 1980? It was formed in 1970 while we were going to the moon, after the first photo, of Earthrise over the lunar landscape was published, was posted by NASA. So this, this awareness rose up. The first Earth Day was 1970. Um, leaded gas was banned. DDT was banned. The Comprehensive Clean Water Act, the Comprehensive Clean Air Act, which previously had some stipulations earlier, but in this new era, where your concern about pollution isn't just the river behind that goes through your neighborhood or the lake that maybe some company had polluted. People, for the first time, were thinking globally. And as Carl Sagan famously noted, uh, air molecules don't carry passports. If you pollute the air here, it goes elsewhere, through the jet streams, through other, other forces of climactic churning that goes on in our atmosphere. So the notion that we're all in this together, I trace, based on my read of history, to the time we went to the moon. So, so to say, how do I, how do I, how do I reconcile uh, these lofty goals of going to the moon? I don't think we knew that that would be a consequence of it, but it may have been the greatest gift that the Apollo missions gave us.
0: It seems that it's an idea that's been difficult to socially incorporate uh, other than the raft of legislation that you've already cited. It still seems to me that we're primarily governed by territorial uh, incentives and and other motivations that could perhaps ultimately be resourced from basic primal drives, greed on a national level, domination on an international level. So... This, if not absolute, then certainly global knowledge has not entirely infiltrated our consciousness and certainly hasn't entirely um,
1: infiltrated our behavior. Yeah, I would say I agree it hasn't entirely done so, but it has done so at a level where there are things going on today that were unforeseeable long ago, just the laws that were passed to protect the air that you breathe the catalytic converter and what role that played in reducing automobile emissions. I grew up in New York City. I thought every old office building was just black brick. And it turned out that was just soot (laughs) from from decades of automobile exhaust. And after the catalytic converter was developed and introduced, uh, people started slowly power washing the sides of their buildings. Oh, that's a beautiful brick. Color or, or an amber or a red brick. All of a sudden, buildings took on these identities that I didn't even know were there. That's how, that's how, um, how blind I was to, to, uh, to to how how steeped. I did not know how steeped I was in auto exhaust. Let me put it that way. Having grown up in it, so so today, um, they're trash cans. People put. Garbage and trash cans. People think about trash. They think about pollution. If a company is noted to be polluting something, everybody jumps all over them and they don't do business anymore. So there are major infiltrations that have happened, even if it's not total. It's at least partial, and that's a start.
0: The, the narrative of progress is an alluring and attractive one, and one that is easy to track using technological and scientific markers in particular. We can witness and you are one of the great experts in espousing and educating people on the nature of that progress cosmologically but in other fields of science as well you know in your new book and in much of your other writing and it seems impossible for you at least to divorce your um, admittedly cosmic knowledge from more uh, particular specific political and philosophical issues but from for me this idea of progress outside of the world of science seems to be mythic as opposed to actual and literal it seems that from my perspective that there is a degree of stagnation as indicated in the uh, part of the answer to the first question that there are still tribal conflicts nationalistic ideas and quite um retrograde and unsophisticated um Philosophies that are, I think govern not only individual behavior, but certainly that, but more impactfully the behavior of uh, corporations, of big business, and to a degree government. Whilst I recognize that there is this romantic allure of the, the globe and the sort of um, utopianism of, of that, admittedly, scientific vision.
1: Well, there's the book by Steven Pinker, The Better Angels of Our Nature, I think that's the precise title, where he studied tribal violence from the days where everyone lived in tribes nomadically to modern times where we now, most people live under state-controlled existence, countries, this sort of thing with leaders and uh, either elected or otherwise. And what he found was no matter what period of time you look at, decades, centuries, millennia, the likelihood of you dying... And at the hands of another person has been dropping persistently from the beginning of civilization to modern times. And a part of it is, if you are one tribe fighting another, and you're just a tribe, let's say say traditional tribe, you're in the woods and it's a tribe, you can ask, what percentage of the other tribe will you kill before they give up? Well, it's not 10%. It's like half or two-thirds. It's some number that is unthinkable in state-sanctioned warfare because the state has its own survival as a broader goal. So if you look at the numbers, take, for example, the Second World War, what countries lost the biggest percentage of their people? Okay, There's some bad numbers in there. I forgot the exact list. There's one country that lost a third. But that, that was the worst of, among them. The United States lost, we lost a half a million servicemen. Uh, out of what was our population at the time, at least 150 million, possibly 200 million. So uh, how many did we lose in the Vietnam War? 50,000, 60,000, OK? that's still more than zero, but it is small compared with the total population of the country. So when you have states, what he found was that when you have state-sanctioned conflict, the tolerance for all-out warfare leading into the complete death of your tribe, that tolerance is near zero. And I ran some numbers. If you look at the total deaths from the Second World War, um, I I ran the numbers. From 1939 to 1945, 1,000 people per hour were killed I cannot now agree with you that today is the same today is safer than then okay today if a truck drives through a crowded square a terrorist act killing 20 people that is headlines worldwide for a week yes and so you go back, like I said, to the Second World War, 1,000 people per hour. And even at 1,000 people per hour, the percent of total deaths in any given state was smaller compared with going back centuries and millennia before. So I can't entirely agree with you that we're behaving in the same way. Even, though, even if the goals are different, I think we're a little, we're a little better than we used to be
0: I think it's an interesting metric in a sense just to concentrate on deaths through violence whilst mm-hmm. I take your point that that's a significant category I would say that the augmentation of a centralized sovereign states already represents such oppression and annihilation of culture that death through conflict becomes secondary
1: yeah so I, not, at no time in what I just said does it reference the survival of culture right yes. and what
0: or the value of life or the beauty of life or connections even using a sort of a materialistic rationalistic idea to like connection to the cosmos and an appreciation of the beauty of astronomy
1: yeah i was just it was pure de- death rate that i was referencing there so <laughs> it's just the death leagues right right and so the there's all the rest of that there are pe- there are cultures that have been wiped out and we lose everything about them their language their art their the so this is this is in the list of great tragedies of the conduct of our civilization over the centuries and even, uh, I'd say, even millennia. You go all the way back to sort of Alexander and, and the like, just the idea that let's just conquer because that's the thing to do. You know, that's kind of weird when you think about it. Yes. Um, uh, I would say that the, uh, if we go back to the 1960s, 1967, there was something called the Outer Space uh, uh, Treaty, the Treaty for Conduct in Outer Space. There's some long title, but it's just called the Outer Space Treaty in shorthand. And it saw this by, by the UN. The UN uh, it came out of the UN and it was signed by all spacefaring nations and other nations as well. It was a document recognizing that Earth's surface is no longer the limits of where we will be, and it gave some guidance for what our conduct should be in space. Now. I'm going to give two sides of an argument, and I'm going to land basically agreeing with what you've just told me. All right? (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) Okay. so it shows such hope and such promise. It says there shall be no warfare in space and no weapons. uh, I'm paraphrasing, but but, uh, no weapons of destruction. And if one country is in trouble uh, or is in need of help, other countries in space will come to their aid it is very kumbaya you just want to (laughs) hold hands and say space is gonna be that's where we're gonna fix all of these earth-based problems so I so want to believe that but then the cynical side of me which seems like there's some of that in you too (laughs) the cynical side of me says if you can't behave in a way that does not lead to violence on Earth's surface, why should I believe that humans in space would act any differently at all? And in fact, if you can treat each other kindly in space, then why not do that on Earth? You wouldn't even need a space treaty. We're just doing the same stuff we're doing here on Earth in space. So, so this is why you have things, suggestions such as a space force. Okay. This came up recently, in, uh, and Trump, President Trump mentioned it. Just because it came out of Trump's mouth doesn't mean it's a crazy idea. Why would you want a Space Force? Uh, by the way, there's already a Space Force. It's just not called that. It's called the um, the Air Force. has something called the U.S. Space Command. It's a command of the Air Force. It has a general and all the trappings, and they monitor the GPS satellites. That, that was a military project of the air force to help guide missiles but then the public co-opted it so we can find grandma's house using um, uh, google maps right <laughs> okay so it became a huge commercially valuable thing beyond just the original military application so when people think of uh, space war that's uh, 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 a space force that's got to be bad they're not thinking wait a minute we've been I don't want to say waging war, but we've had war assets in space ever since the 1960s. What do you think spy satellites are from the very beginning? And so all a Space Force would do would be collect all of these under a common umbrella, and it would, and its goal would be to protect assets against bad players who might also be entering the space regime. That's what it would do. And if you look at GPS in particular, it's not just the value of the hardware that's up there orbiting. It's the value of the commerce that it enables. Yes. The entire business model of Uber is GPS satellites. So, so, um, so all I'm saying is uh, Space Force is a tacit recognition that there could be uh, bad players in the future as more people have access to space.
0: Also within that anecdote was a, a sort of a, a, a beautiful and I feel oft-repeated pattern of state-funded exploration leading to innovation and breakthrough that is then metabolized by private industry and sold back to the very people that paid for its yeah. evolution <laughs> in the first That's place. That's true. That's actually true. And, this and is, i love
1: the word "metabolized" as you use it. Very creative. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And these invisible ideas, these invisible, difficult to ascertain, somewhat abstract philosophies, I feel are, uh, as almost m- might I venture as powerful as some of the physical laws that govern our lives, even though they are confections, uh, ideas such as commerce and uh, profit and who has power, who controls or what resources. I'm I'm referring again to my original question. Part of the perspective clearly afforded to you by the depth and breadth of your cosmological knowledge, from me as a a, a humble outsider glancing from the periphery, it seems like like how can that not um, inform a more globalised and, what, what do I want to say, almost... You know, there's that quote, of course you will, because I know that Carl Sagan was a mentor of yours. Uh, like, I think in one of these conversations with someone, an astronaut, this astronaut came back and said, when you see the Earth from space, it makes you want to grab politicians oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and go, you that, assholes. Yeah, yeah,
1: that was uh, Apollo 14, Edgar Mitchell. <laughs> and uh, I have it on my phone. I can dig it. If you give me a second, I'll just dig oh, it. Oh, would up. you? Keep, keep, keep talking. Keep talking.
0: Well, I find that very—I uh, found that very moving and powerful. That quote because it's like that person in a physical and uh, material way has experienced transcendence. Has yes. experienced this is what it is to have a global perspective. Yes. Suddenly, yes. the world—you know—all history, Shakespeare, Vietnam—all these things have happened on that disc. And the, I love the sort of colloquial way in which Edgar Mitchell was able to render that powerful yeah, sentiment. It, very here. idealistic as well. I'm just feeling. Now, Neil, yeah. <laughs> this yeah, is not yeah. just filler. Yeah, yeah vamp. <laughs> okay, here it is. You ready?
1: Yes, sir. Okay. You develop about oh, so Edgar Mitchell, Apollo fourteen, went to the moon and back. Okay, but when he was on the moon, he had this reflection, which he then told Time magazine. You develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and drag him a quarter million miles out and say, look at that, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14. That's pretty beautiful and profound. It's, there it is. And nothing you could say because you didn't go to the moon. He went to the moon, and he saw Earth, and that's what he felt. Unless you agree with him. <laughs>
0: Unless you're be got by the scruff of the neck, th- which is his <laughs> clear intention to anyone who doesn't see the world his way from up there.
1: It's, 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 uh, I think some people call it the overview effect. Uh, for me in my field, we generally reference it as a cosmic perspective that, yeah. that changes you. And in fact, there are, in this book, there are many letters where a cosmic perspective was my only kind of reply I could give them because they were looking for some deeper understanding of their place in the universe or some decision they might make or they're confronting death. Yes. And about, there's 101 letters in there, about 10% of them are from people of a religious tradition where later they learned some science that conflicted and then they became conflicted. So they write in about that. There are people who are still on a spiritual quest and they just wondered, does science have anything anything to say about this? Because so many of these letters are so personal. I've had to conclude that most people have never even met a scientist in their lives, much less claim one as their friend. And the way these people are writing to me, it's as though I'm their friend. Whatever it is that I did on YouTube videos or in appearances and documentaries, people felt comfortable enough to write these letters and it's it's a huge responsibility because they're coming to me for guide, life guidance and uh, I don't claim to be a counselor or a psychiatrist or psychologist but I do have perspectives that come as just from being a scientist it's an outlook from being a scientist but also that darn cosmic perspective that can really put you in a new and different place with regard to whatever it is you're thinking about, whatever decisions you need to make.
0: Yes, and it, sort of as a paradigm, it's functioning almost identically to a spiritual perspective, would you say? I know, of course, that what you will contest is that it's evidence-based and it's... Well, reserve, yeah, thought, and so- well
1: you don't know. We haven't had that conversation yet. Um, but I would say uh, spirituality, I think, means different things to different people. So I don't want to generalize what it might mean, but I can say that if spirituality to you is the sense or the feeling that there's something else going on that you don't otherwise see or experience, that's an interesting state of mind to have. And science is still a moving frontier. Space is still a moving frontier. There's probably more to be discovered than we have yet discovered yeah. that awaits us. So I'm not going to say that there isn't something there that you may could be tapping into. Um, I, I prefer hard evidence.
0: Why? Before
1: I I prefer it because <laughs> <laughs> evidence is a good thing. There's so many things you can end up doing with your you can end up doing with your life in the absence of evidence that you could end up dying from it, for example. Uh, if someone says here, uh, rub these crystals and it'll cure your ailments, if your ailment is a particular kind of cancer for which we can actually cure you, you will likely die no matter how hard you rub the crystals together. That, that's an exaggeration, but it's the, it's an, it, it's the kind of case where, where evidence-based living can have a very important effect on your longevity. <laughs>
0: Yes, yes. There's no question yeah. that in medicine and, and these areas, of yeah. society, that, that cannot be contested. But I, I feel that m- rationalism and materialism bump up against certain limits. And and if it if we are to have conversations based on evidence, then in a sense we can track what materialism, commerce, capitalism. Lead to, they are currently like you know. This is I don't want to be like apocalyptic or anything new. Although I get the
1: sense you can handle it. (laughs) It it seems that it leads to. But your hands are coming out like this, and you do (laughs) you do look a little bit like Jesus, right? So so this combination is feeling (laughs) a little apocalyptic to me. But go on. I'm flinging uh, (laughs) the palms out (laughs) to the extremes of the crucifix. (laughs) Even even as I talk,
0: Uh this is what what I feel like that human beings have this relationship with the unknown and potentially unknowable, not least through our intimate relationship with experience and consciousness. Uh, well, whilst there's definitely a trackable progress in the, the field of science and the, the the benevolent miracles that have been bestowed upon us by the scientific method are you know this is foundational in what we recognise as society and civilization. it seems to me that there's another aspect to human nature that's dealing with subtler forces that are difficult to know. Um, and and again as a man that's dedicated to science i'm not anticipating that this is the conversation we go oh, yeah why don't we just believe in fairies and ghosts and that kind of stuff but the same way that invisible uh, invisible constructs and concepts such as the idea of the united kingdom or the idea of america or the idea of class or to a degree gender and race can be used to control and separate uh, i feel that People need narratives and stories to help them access the kind of uh, uh, perspective that Edgar Mitchell is talking about, a passionate sense that there's something that unifies us. And I would never, with a religious person or a non-religious person, say, hey, I think that you should regard the sublime in this way. But it seems important to me, and I've had a comparable conversation with uh, Brian Cox, who I know they are friendly with, Uh like, um, because... You know, you are both. It seems to me very passionate men who love the cosmos, love the universe, and so much of your book is talking. It comes from a place of love and kindness and togetherness. Thanks for noticing that. Yeah,
1: that's definitely there. Yeah,
0: and I think that, that you know we've got more in common. With those of us that believe that love and compassion should define our experience here on Earth and in the outer reaches of space have more in common than those of us that are trying to pursue materialistic, individualistic, selfish goals. Although I'm capable of being both of those people, I feel that. Where is the upon what terrain mentally? Do we afford the possibility of negotiation with the unknown when there are still such great mysteries? Like the formation of consciousness. Every time I see an article saying, you know, new evidence about the configuration of consciousness on neurological pathways, it always leads to... We don't bloody it's the know. the evidence that
1: we know nothing about it, that people keep publishing books on consciousness attempting to explain it. The more... If you just look at the progress of knowledge, when people are actively publishing on a topic, generally it means that it's not settled. That's why people keep publishing. the results with, aren't in yet. They're not in yet. That's correct. When the results are in and everyone can agree, then people stop publishing on it. So the fact that you can go to a bookstore or a library and see shelf upon shelf of people, people's books saying that they explain consciousness and those books continue to appear even to this day, it, it's just evidence of that. Uh, whereas if you go to the shelf of the books on gravity, there's like four books. <laughs> That's kind of it. You know, we, 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 get, we got to the moon, we got to Mars, we got the gravity thing, all right? We, we got that worked out. But let me get back to your point mm. about the unknown. The, the, um, I, the unknown is, is one of the most powerful forces of inquiry to the scientist. We thrive in the unknown we love the unknown we like standing in the within the perimeter of the circle that is known and staring out into an abyss and saying wow I don't understand what that is let me get back to work so there's a difference between not knowing something because the circle hasn't expanded large enough to encompass it and declaring something is in principle unknowable and the history of what it is to know stuff does not support the contention that there are things that are unknowable that, out go then, the arms again. <laughs> the, arms <have> gone up <laughs> the Jesus just, arms just for those only listening. <laughs>
0: but even from things that you've but even from things that I've heard you explain, one of the things that you said that I really loved is like, you say when dealing with people that are um I suppose um pedagogical or evangelical, is there anything I could say to you that would change your mind? And if the person says no, then you don't bother. Yeah, you're kind of done with the conversation, right? Here's something that I'd like mm-hmm. to say, though, and because like, I'm, I'm well up for learning always, I hope, that, that surely... Consciousness as we understand it and our experience as human beings, limited as it is by our sensory instruments, is contained within certain parameters whilst we can amplify and magnify in all sorts of directions. There is a sort of a basic limitation to our understanding and even from watching your program on the cosmos when you talked about multiverses and even from hearing you talking about neutrinos and how inconceivably l- low down the subparticular world goes, in this scope the Unknowable in terms of the human experience upon that which can be proved that that must be a vast, vast territory because we can never know the multiverses, would that be fair to say? We can never know from a sort of a century perspective I'm the not neutrino world:
1: I'm just not going to say that because the moving frontier delivers all manner of new surprises to things that you thought were either fully known or partially known or unknowable in a previous time. Uh, take a look. This is a, a medium good example. Uh, in the day when sort of religious philosophies were, nice, were deeply embedded, and let's look at Europe for a moment, and someone bends over and writhes on the ground and at the, froths at the mouth. It's really obvious what's going on there. The devil has infused the body of this person. So we need an exorcism. So the priest comes, brings the holy water, exorcises the person, and then the symptoms fade away and clearly the devil left the body. That was the explanation in the absence of the methods and tools of science. And now we know, of course, that's an, an epileptic fit. And it does run its course given the illusion that removing the devil by holy water and other incantations by the priests is what actually solved the problem. So back then, that was something that they thought they understood, but in fact did not. Maybe there might still be people today who think that's what's necessary. But the medical profession tells us that this is an ailment that afflicts some human brains. Very unfortunate rapid uncontrolled firing of synapses. And so that's an example of something that um, may have been unknowable or even divine at a time that we solved and we're onto other problems.
0: There's no question that a superstition thrives in ignorance and institutions yes. that crave power will uh, exploit that. Exploit that yes. that, that that void. Um, but what I'm talking about is that even based on like on what I've learned from watching your TV shows, that the scope, the sheer scope, that it is, put simply, the capacity for human understanding must be finite. So... The capacity for knowledge, infinite.
1: Let me let me agree and disagree with you, okay? So, uh, first, a lot of what you describe our consciousness, our personal experience, what we feel. In science, I don't even care. Because the human senses are demonstrably Mm ill-equipped to take measure of the totality of the physical universe. So what science has done, basically since the invention of the microscope and telescope, which happened within 10 years of each other, by the way, back around the year 1600, then the race was on. I can now enhance your view with the telescope. I can improve your view downward with a microscope. Your senses had no access to those places in the universe until I came up with those instruments. And the run of science over the past 400 years has been all about developing instruments so that you can see beyond the five senses you are biologically endowed with. So when someone comes up to me and says, I think I have a sixth sense, uh, I have ESP, I say, fine, but in science we have 12 senses. I can measure things. Your body doesn't even know is going on in front of you right now. And so, so that, is, that is a power over ignorance that science has brought to us over all of these centuries. Now, let me now agree with you. It's, who is to say that humans, who by our own definition are the first intelligent species there ever was on Earth, who's to say we have just the right amount of intelligence – To figure out the (laughs) entire universe. That's kind of egocentric. Yes. Think about, and I give this example often, I'll do it for you here on your show. You uh, take the closest genetic relative, so the chimpanzee. It's a trifling difference in DNA between us. 2%, somewhere around there. Well, if if you're a human lover, you would say, what a difference that 2% makes. We have podcasts. We have the Hubble <laughs> telescope. We have philosophy. We have art. We have music. And the chimp does not. What can the chimp do? They can stack boxes and reach a banana. Our toddlers can do that. So that's a smart chimp, what our toddlers can do? So we're, 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 sitting, we're sitting pretty happy about ourselves, right? But now, imagine some other life form 2% beyond us in the same vector that we are 2% beyond the chimps, What would we look like to them? The smartest of us would accomplish what their toddlers can do. I, and I joke that we, they take Stephen Hawking, roll him forward at their, at their human study conferences and say this human, Stephen Hawking, is slightly smarter than the rest because he can do astrophysics calculations in his head like little Timmy over here who just came home from preschool. Alien Timmy. So, our most, their simplest thoughts would transcend our most complex thoughts. Yes. To them, the universe might be just a trivial exercise that you learn all about in an afternoon. Yes. Yet, we are struggling, requiring the most brilliant among us scattered over centuries with information shared that, and incremented upon one rung of a ladder at a time trying to see over the hill and we can't yet whatever that hill is we don't even know how tall the hill is how tall the hill is so i don't know if we're smart enough to figure out the universe but we're still progressing and i'm happy with that
0: Yes, and our like, um, the the comparison between our experience of reality and our cultures and the cultures and experience presumed experience of reality of a chimpanzee compared to this uh, as yet
1: fantastic two percent advanced species. Um, it's, Before we know, we're already their pets. Right, we're in a terrarium. Yeah, yeah, yeah earth, it's a ter- Earth terrarium. Uh, um,
0: it's sort of inconceivable how abstract. And tangential their perspective of reality might be, and here I would like to so,
1: um, completely inconceivable, inconceivable. Just think of the following sentence, uh, Russell. Uh, when we're done here, uh, I I, I got to leave tomorrow. I go back to New York and I get a plane, um, and it leaves. And uh, but, but next time you're in New York, call me on this number, and we'll chat. There's nothing in that sentence that is even approachable by a chimpanzee. chimpanzee. Wait, how are you crossing that? What's an airplane? How does that work? What's a telephone? What's the future. A <laughs> <laughs> like a relationship, a
0: conceptual relationship. You know, so on one line, there's the material, the, the traceable material empirical pathways which we can track and regard those particular narratives. But I want to mention this thing that's been bothering me ever since I see it on your TV show, that dude Bruno who precedes Galileo Giordano by a bit. Giordano Bruno, yes. So I love that bit of the show, and it seemed to me that that fella went on some kind of vision quest. Yeah, I love that, vision quest, that's what that was. An entirely new perspective of reality, which is now
1: verifiably he true. the universe, that the stars of the universe were like the sun, and they each might have had planets unto themselves. And so my favorite quote of his is that, as he says to the religious orders of the day, your universe is too small. It's a god looking at only Earth when there could be an entire universe full of planets.
0: Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Now, like, what I feel like is that this, these can prior to Galileo verifying the and uh, was it Copernicus verifying
1: yeah, yeah Copernican uh, verifying Copernicus for having the sun in the center of the known uh, solar system. Yeah.
0: He was able to conceptualize that idea without any sen- sensory, mechanical, or, or verifiable
1: access to data. Not only that, he did it before the telescope So he just invented. kind of Sorry, dreamed it. So in all fairness, he did have data, but just wasn't from telescopes. It was Where very was it from? Accurate measurements of... of um,
0: Astronomical yeah, movement yeah. I mean
1: just watch What the planets are doing In the night sky Hang on a minute and That's not going around the yeah, sun there, You can explain it With epicycles Or you can explain it With earth in the middle Or you can explain it With the sun In fact there was a, pre- a Preface Or an introduction To his great works called De revolutionibus That was uh, Rumors have it That he was forced To put it in With So that he wouldn't be Branded a heretic And in this In this introduction Uh, He says, uh, this is probably not right, the sun in the middle of the known universe, but if it helps us to calculate, then this model should still be shared um, by others. So he did not fully commit, and and we think he may have been coerced to saying that, but he did not fully commit to the sun-centered universe. Just said, treat it as a model if it helps the calculations come out. Please don't burn me. <laughs> i just that's between the lines. <laughs> right. right. So, um so by the way, he predates the telescope and the microscope. Yes. So so when I gave you the birth date of science as it is unfolded uh, as it is conducted by enhancing our senses that is post-Copernicus. Yes, sir. So so you can't say Oh, science never gets it right. How do I know you're going to change your mind? We used to think Earth was flat. Now we think it's round. We used to think the Earth was in the middle. Of the- that was before we had the methods and tools of science. Yes. Once you have the methods and tools, you can perform experiments that verify whether something is objectively true. And then move on.
0: These experiments are obviously vital, and that's not something I'm disputing. Uh, It just seems interesting to me that, in the case just cited, someone envisages a a reality, intuitive, and also isn't the history of your discipline uh, strewn with such examples of uh, almost divine intervention? Sudden access to data and information that has previously been locked. Sudden downloads, whether it's like the relativity or gravity, you know, the the great benchmarks sparks of of brilliance and what are these sparks of brilliance and from where do they come and i don't think we can immediately go oh there's a god and it's god (laughs) (laughs) but it's interesting to me that there is a sort of a rich theological history particularly i'm speaking of, of vedic traditions that seem to be referring to cosmology and discoveries that have since been verified in a metaphorical and symbolic language not equipped with sub-particular with math
1: or indeed. <laughs> okay, here's here's my issue with for take. you mentioned Vedic traditions. Yeah. Um, I don't know that you could use Vedic traditions to design and build an airplane that doesn't fall out of the sky. So you can say that they got it first in whatever sort of metaphorical similarities. I don't have a problem with that, but it's not useful in the in the when it comes down in the end to putting it to work in the service of civilization.
0: But Neil, don't you think that there's something rather reductive about continually referring to direct material utility as the only positive outcome, particularly when a significant part of even this conversation is about abstract, conceptual, ideological territories that humankind seem to wrestle with, fairness, equality, love. I don't have a
1: problem with that. It's just that you commented that some of these Eastern philosophies mention Vedic, astrology yes, among yes, them, yes, yes. that that somehow knew something before we did about... And why th- do you have
0: this very clear <coughs> we and they? So- <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: because there are different times and different places and different cultures. So
0: but it seems like it's science versus, say, theology or spiritual, spiritual- no, I, spirituality. I,
1: I, I would just say that if you look at Eastern philosophies, not that I claim to be some world expert on this, but I've read a little, that... The people who see what science has discovered in modern times, many go back to the Eastern philosophies and they say, see, they got that all along. Or do you see quantum physics was prefigured by this tract of writing? And I'll say, Okay, but you didn't use that pre of writing to invent the technolog- the IT revolution, which is founded on our understanding of quantum physics. So so so, maybe that's not what you should be citing as its value. Maybe oh, you should yeah. be citing its emotional spiritual um uh, value in how we treat one another, sure,
0: exactly. I think it's merely a curiosity if there seem to be comparisons that could be made between like Brahman breathing universes into reality right, exactly <laughs> so, exactly it's,
1: it's 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 interesting metaphorical analogues,
0: yes. But like and, and in a sense, Neil, this could be used to demark the sort of t- the territories for mechanistic science and moral theology and spiritualism that one territory is about how do we treat each other and take care of each other, and it would be as ridiculous to use science to to try to prescribe morality ethics oneness as it would be to use the vaders to design uh, an, an airplane, airplane.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i would say that science can inform moral philosophy if you have some sense of morality based on some principle there could be things science can learn ab- about that principle that can help you make decisions when it's time to lay out a moral code for example so uh, i I don't want to completely put a line in the sand between the progress of science and the progress of of the arc of moral uh, uh, progress.
0: Yeah, because... um if it, if it, uh, nor would I, because even the, the you know what's become a, a repeated emblem through our little chat, the Edgar Mitchell. That's a, for me. That's a spiritual idea. He's saying, why are you prioritizing ideas of territory, commerce, and gain
1: uh, over our essential, integral, verifiable oneness? Right, and that image of Earth from space is as nature intends you to see it, without the color-coded countries that are in your school classroom. On the yes. school globe, yes, these imposed. But there they are, and and I remember as a kid. Why are these? Why are they all different colors? I just remember thinking that, not understanding it, because when you're really young, you don't understand the concept of a state, of a state existence, and of a. Yes, I knew the fifty states of the United States, but a governmental state. What does that even mean? Like you said, that's a very abstract concept. I remembered the first time I walked slowly through the Capitol in Washington D.C. Their quotes all over okay none of these quotes is praising any human being they're praising ideals and I'm saying wow yeah oh my god and I felt so patriotic <laughs> but then I realized what is the United States it's just an idea it, this is not written on, in, a, in a tablet in the sky this is just some people gathered around and said this is us then how do you protect that idea? Oh, you need a military <laughs> to say this is us and that's not you. And so I feel you when you say these are these abstract ideas that we that we that pervade civilization that don't have any tangibility other than that we all agree to behave in this way. Yes, and that way you can demark who is in and who is out of group
0: faith-based ideologies, such as you know, the state is a de facto religion uh, utilizing the philosophies and ideas the structures that preceded
1: it in the pre-secular i, I wouldn't say faith-based uh, not to be semantic i would say that it's um what faith and politics have in common is dogma So that's what's really manifesting. Because faith would be, I think this is true even in the absence of evidence. Whereas uh, politics will come up with some like Nazism where it's just, it's not based on whether they're gods or anything, it's just you're superior and everyone else isn't. Yes. And then there's a worldview and a philosophy and there it is feeding itself.
0: But my sense is that if enough people resigned from the belief that, e.g., the United Kingdom is a real thing, the United Kingdom ceases to be a real thing. Correct. Correct.
1: Yeah, it requires this shoring up of who and what the idea is for it to work in any way that makes sense as a country, as a queen. Why, Why does the parliament have power? Why is the queen so revered? All of this no question about it. So, an interesting question that you that you haven't put on the table, but I will cuz you just made me do so, is a cosmic perspective overrides all of that. Yes. And they kind of did that with the TV series Star Trek. It's the United Federation of Planets. There is no there's no fighting on Earth anymore. We're all together. We're all humans. And I joke that if aliens came to Earth, what they might remark most about is what? This same species speaks different languages? They can't communicate with one another? How many languages do they speak? Hundreds? A thousand dialects? What? You need a certain piece of paper to cross this line <laughs> on this land mass? And if you cross this other line, they will harm you? What are you? I, I, I'm I just trying to picture what an alien would say about us.
0: Yes. Most of these uh, concepts are ridiculous to me until I consider uh, the interests of the powerful. When I think, what are the interests of the powerful? And um, usually the philosophies and uh, the way that... Terrain and topography is demarked is in accordance with my understanding of the interests of the powerful. And my concern would be, as as a a, a great man of science, do do you have concerns that the field of science, whilst its findings are um, transcendent and verifiable and transcendent of politics, that their funding, for example, and many of their objectives, say in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, weapon industry, are contained and ultimately controlled by primal motives that do belong in that 2% deficit chimpanzee land that we thought we'd <laughs> left behind. Ways of enforcing power, ways of demonstrating control.
1: There's no question that what science gets funded mm. is driven by geopolitical forces. There's no question about that. Mm. And geopolitical could mean economic, it could be militaristic, it could be hegemonistic, Any and all of the above, no question about it. But it does not affect what science finds to be objectively true. Yes. That answers to a higher power (laughs) than the funding source. That is nature serving as the ultimate judge, jury, and executioner of an idea. And it is possible, by the way, scientists are human just like anybody else, and we have bias like anybody else. We might be a little more aware of our own bias, but we have bias. So fortunately, the methods and tools of science have systems in place to ferret out that bias. Why is it? How does that work? You came out with a result, and I think think you're biased. I'm going to do your experiment to see if I get the same result. But I got a different result. Mm. That throws your result into question, and it throws in your integrity as a scientist into question. I get credit for showing that you're wrong.
0: Yeah, in the more esoteric circles of academic science, perhaps, but not like if you're churning out some opioids <laughs> across America. Oh. And I would saying, no, hey, you shouldn't be selling... Percocet and fentanyl is a new study because that's not in the interests of the pharmaceutical industry. So I would say that the ultimate ideology is a capitalist consumer ideology and scientific pursuit, even though it's based on objectivity, has to exist within that framework. And as a result, there's an incremental but continual bias towards the results that do not challenge the interests of the powerful. And that challenges the fundamental objectivity of the entire discipline.
1: No, not the objectivity. It challenges the... the, um there could be entire branches of science that go unresearched because they are not of interest to the state. Yeah. That and More that's that's sad. That's sad. So what? We, so occasionally you get people who are wealthy will fund their own research project, or if you win a Nobel Prize, you get a million three, a million five dollars, and then you start your own project, and you're not beholden to the wishes of the state. Um, I, or big business. Uh, or or, or the economic or political wishes. My book before this one. Was titled "Accessory to War." Oh, yeah, that military one. The yeah, exactly. The unspoken alliance between astrophysics and the military, and it's a very real fact that, in spite of the general liberal anti-war posture that I and my colleagues take, um, we're overwhelmingly liberal, progressive anti-war. There are common needs that overlap with the military. Uh. There are innovations in the military that we have exploited. There are innovations that we have uh, invented that they have exploited. And this overlap is a two-way street, and it's been going for centuries, even millennia. So it doesn't change the objectivity. It changes just the categories of things that get researched. That's all.
0: And in a sense, how can we make any claim to objectivity when there is such evident bias in the direction of study? No, it's I, I, not ultimate objectivity, it's objectivity. That's a different
1: bias from bias in your actual research. Yes, yes. So I want, to, I want to separate those two. I would agree. Definitely the state will fund what they want to see. Yes. If you now do the experiment, you can do it in an unbiased way. And if you don't get the results the state wants, that's too bad for the state. Yeah,
0: but you ain't getting no funding for that <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So that field of objectivity remains invisible forever. You know, like I'm a, a fan of the um, comedian Bill Hicks, who, uh, and uh, like a, I'm also very aware I was introduced to you somewhat through your appearances on Joe Rogan, who's mm-hmm. a friend of mine who mm-hmm. I, I think is absolutely
1: fantastic. We all connect through Joe Rogan at he some is point. the, yes. the, okay. the epicenter, <laughs> oh, yeah, the heliocentric uh-huh. version yeah.
0: of the podcast space. Um, that Bill Hicks in particle physics they call it he's the center of mass.
1: All oh, right, the he's particle <laughs> universe. Yes,
0: I think he would enjoy that. Man. Uh-huh. Um, like uh, that, Bill Hicks has a quote about sort of essentially about transcending our biases and um, earthly prejudices. And he says, you know, and we could explore space both inner and outer together in peace. There's this sort of summit of this wonderful positivist diatribe, and I feel that. You know, with the removal of a uh, capitalist nationalist consumerist uh, ideology, which I would say is one of the dangers I feel of a well, an evidenced based world is the, uh, the the only things that can be proved are we live then we die uh, that we re- require certain resources uh, and that this pathway neglects a, an aspect of human existence which i feel has become um barren stagnated and and our lack of access to it i think is expediting our the, the destruction
1: what do you of, see at the, the center of that no no what what is what are we missing most do you feel
0: this what you would in your language call a cosmic perspective
1: Okay. and, but, like, but and I we think need that because that it can reshape how you think about the world and every decision you make every day you live so yeah i agree but that's, um, well, that's what what do you think i'm trying to do just, just, on a podcast. am i failing it's that badly i've
0: got jet lag i'm sat here going through this shit you're blaming me <laughs> i know <laughs> meet, meet me outside i have <laughs> We'll settle this like man i know you wrestle um <laughs> So, I do weigh
1: you buy more than 100 pounds. So, uh, yeah, I don't uh, recommend we go that route. Yeah. So, um... So... It's a good thing Joe Rogan isn't here because he can kick both of our asses. Right, yeah, who needs that guy involved? <laughs> yeah, I'll keep it very... just keep this academic, intellectual, and verbal.
0: Um, but... Yes, that, that, it seems to me. How do you feel, if there is a general coalescence in terms of the objectives, from my perspective achieved not through academic study or knowledge of the cosmos, but through an, an, an intuitive understanding of my own psychology, through my own suffering, through reading of various scriptures and psychology and psychiatry, the realm of philosophy that can never be underwritten in the material and mechanical way that your disciplines can, but have still led me to this place, and, and that to, to my earlier point about uh, the Rishi say saints and sages and your man Bruno, discovering through means not fully identifiable that there is a, 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 a oneness, a, a unity, if, we were, if we're arriving at the same position, does, it, does that to you, Neil, uh, mean that we can afford
1: s- uh, space to both of these milieus? So you're saying arriving at the same position. I would say, throughout history, there have been deep thinkers about the physical universe. Not all of them have gotten the right answer. Right answer defined by, we would later show, by the methods and tools of empirical science that the idea was well-founded and, 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 and fertile for further research. So, I, I'm not prepared to say that all the deep thinkers that had deep thoughts, that they all were equally as influential in the progress of our understanding of the natural world. And another point I would make, which I meant to make about uh, 20 minutes ago, was uh, Isaac Asimov famously noted that the scientist who makes a discovery is not likely to ever say Eureka, contrary to the claims of, of um, uh, Archimedes or Ar- Archimedes. So, no, the, the the signature of a discovery is not... Eureka, it's, hmm, that's funny. (laughs) 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 There's just, hmm, that's odd. That is the source of discovery. It's something didn't happen the way you expected it. So something is going on that you don't understand. Now you have to figure out what that is. Do you even know what question to ask in order to design the experiment to test for it? So I, I just want to say that I don't know that the scientist needs the, the shaman next to them while they go forward. I don't know that that's necessary. You might need them to think about people and places and things and relationships, but advancing our understanding of the natural universe when the scientist has access to senses that go beyond the five senses the shaman has or the six senses the shaman has I'm I'm good with the science here.
0: Absolutely, but in a culture that incorporates the shamanic as well as the scientific, I like that word shamanic,
1: the funding. You just make up that word. I'm making all the shit <laughs> That's up, a Neil. good word. No, it's a I've good been word. I'm not all you. I'm complimenting you on the, a shamanic go.
0: The the society that incorporates the shamanic and the scientific would very likely afford the scientist the territory, terrain, and funding. To explore the outer reaches possibly, of possibly, and we have them in the modern. That's what the world. priests,
1: the rabbis, the, the 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 um the imams.
0: I would say they're neutered and operate within territories that are no longer potent, except in sort of almost everyone
1: does. You say that as though that's unique to one kind of thinker relative to another. Everybody's within a within a culture within a system.
0: Yes. Yes, but I I suppose that the shaman was just a temporary totem for the idea of hmm, uh, the divine and a cosmic perspective Mm -hmm. achieved not necessarily through, you know, an Edgar Mitchell style bloody hell look at that, but through a sense, through inner discovery in a world that I think perhaps by its nature and by the limitations of our tools and our senses may never be trackable, monitorable, measurable. You know, like I, when I
1: chatted to Brian Cox, you Wait, know, a so monetizable, I think was the word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not yeah. giving you that word, monetable. <laughs> I'm uh, taking that back. Monitor, <laughs> Yeah, yeah,
0: no problem. <laughs> um, when I chatted to Brian Cox, he said, like, if it can't be measured, then it isn't there. You know, and uh, like I, maybe I misunderstood him, but like I, it feels to me that that is uh, like a, a assuming a kind of that, we, you know, as you've said earlier, that, that we are at the frontiers of what's possible, as opposed to in a very particular animalistic space, somewhere between these vast, unknowable outer reaches, or even though speculatively yet and, to be known, outer reaches, to be known. <laughs> and uh, the again the in the sort of subparticular world is bafflingly beyond microscopic phenomena that our, somehow we have been granted this unique position. And I suppose what what I'm saying is, is that um that if we uh allow science to be uh, the sole f- f- cultural force for determining the nature of our reality. I'm not talking about wacky, orthodox, mad religion that's about telling people they're better and don't put that there at bedtime. Okay. Not that kind of whack stuff. I'm talking about... Uh, you know, what like- do you think
1: you're going to miss if that's the case? If what's the what case? What do you fear if religion, if science leads the way... in our understanding of the universe. I think
0: that it cannot be extricated from commercial interest. I think that
1: if we're talking about evidence-based, look at the last century, it seems that it's... Okay, so here's something to know. Uh, Every country has, every free country, has a funding threshold below which the free exploration of science goes unjudged. So, in the United States, that funding level is at about a billion dollars a year. We can propose pure science projects, provided they come in at less than that price tag, and they don't later on get judged for whether they serve our military or economic values. The Hubble Space Telescope came in under that funding threshold in terms of annual outlay of monies. There's nothing about the Hubble telescope that, other than some technologies that were borrowed from, from the military, the telescope itself and the motivation for making it had no economic or military or any other state-infused uh, point, a state-infused motivation. So you can do science. You're just not going to do the really expensive science because the state has the deepest pockets. That's all. So we didn't make the we didn't build the particle accelerator here. That was above the funding threshold. We were going to make the superconducting supercollider. collider. They already dug the hole in Texas in the 1980s under the Reagan administration. It's still the Cold War. Allow me to remind you. All right, we already built all these other particle accelerators across the country: Brookhaven, um, uh, Lawrence Livermore, um, uh, 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 Berkeley Cyclotron. We have Fermi Labs. We had particle accelerators. Why physicists? Won the Second World War. The country said physicists are important. We need physicists. So they were kept employed the entire time. So what happens? This super collider, which no one is saying, but is given a buoyant force because we're in the middle of a Cold War. Nobody's saying that, though. They say, we're doing this because we're exploring science. What happens? What happens in 1989? The wall comes down. And what happens in 1991, two, and three? Peace breaks out in Europe. You know what else happened in 1993? We zeroed the budget of that particle accelerator, half built or half dug. And the center mass of particle physics crossed the pond and it landed in Switzerland, the Large Hadron Collider. They discovered the next amazing particle, the, the, the Higgs boson. The Higgs boson. They won the Nobel Prize. There it was.
0: Yes, and isn't that a wonderful example of how physics, if it can be utilised for martial endeavour and territorial endeavour, will be funded? Fully and, funded, yes. And then, and when it's no longer useful, it won't be. They just be. zeroed it.
1: Correct. And so, I'm so saying that like was. It's almost the a, invisible ideology that's behind science. See, that's again that's, not but objective. That's for the really not expensive biased. project. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm saying that mm. was above the threshold. Below the threshold, you have things like the Hubble telescope. You have the Mars rovers. You have the mission to Pluto. All of those are below the radar of the state-required fulfillment of some point of philosophy.
0: The longer we talk, Neil, the more that like, I feel like what we're, uh, what I am passionate about is excellence. Excellence and purity of intention. Mm-hmm. And if this exists in the field of science, then that is beautiful. It does and if,
1: below a f- funding threshold, yes.
0: And if it exists in the world of, uh, sort of philosophy, of ideology, but then that is beautiful. And I
1: the feel philosophers these... are not very expensive. <laughs> 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 no, they're... <laughs> Armchair, you know, a, a notepad maybe. Maybe throw, some... Throw in a, 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 a laptop. Some LSD, there. possibly. <laughs> <laughs> if you really want to push the
0: boat out, take it to another dimension. Neil, thank you. Uh, I feel like we've been talking for uh, over
1: an hour. Russell, thanks for have, for having me on, and and I, I enjoyed hearing you try to put spirituality into our <laughs> lives because it's in the pure science side of it. There's there are barriers there, but for me, I don't see barriers. I want to. I like what it is to be human, and being human means you feel at least as much as. You know,
0: I feel awe. I feel awe, and I recognize that this is what you feel in your field of study. And whether you're talking about the minutiae of domestic life and allowing your kid to break eggs, which influenced my own (laughs) parenting, ruined our carpet, Uh, you know, like, uh, Uh or the grand uh, yet unknown (laughs) reaches of the universe, I find you a a great thinker and educator. So I value you and I value our time together. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Neil. Neil? Jen? It's Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, he said say Neil then at the time. He said say Neil. He said say Neil then. That was them. But this is now. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, professor and doctor who Jen seems to think is just her mate from the little village in Ireland that she grew up in. Remember to let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. You can tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin. You can also follow me now on TikTok. Follow me. And at Russell Brand Official. Or on LinkedIn, where I'm known as just Smokey Boy. (laughs) Now I call Russell Brand on that. In the meantime, have a listen back to some previous episodes. Brian Cox was good, wasn't he? Who else is good? You don't know Jason Hickel. Who is Jason Hickel? Oh, he was lovely, Jason Hickel. Have a listen to him. Please sign up to my mailing list on russellbrand.com. If you at help russellbrand.com, so you need help. Don't If you if you, if you just want to say hello, do it at hello. No, hello at russellbrand. If you want help, help at russellbrand. Every email will be read and responded to if it's valid. Not just things like, can you send me a photograph to my cousin? That's what a lot of people want, a photograph for their cousin. You can have it if you want. <laughs> And keep checking my YouTube channel daily for new videos and click subscribe and all that kind of stuff. You know how this media landscape works. Anyway, thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. I love you more than you can ever possibly begin to understand because you are selfish and shallow and cruel. No, you're not. You're wonderful. It's a joke. (laughs) I was looking at Jen then and I got distracted. I described her personality. Uh, All right, so I'll uh, see you next week or speak to you next week. I love you. Bye.